In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent. How are you doing, Tamar? Hey, happy uh, September week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You sound a little uh, giddy this morning. What did you have for breakfast? You know, normally... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I go for a nice, healthy Greek yogurt. But sometimes I feel like I need to go crazy. I had some cereal this morning that has chunks of chocolate in it. It was pretty excellent. Mm. Uh, and folks, the, the the secret is out. We are actually taping this on Friday. Uh, so a few days <laughs> early. So. our secrets, Craig. <laughs> so, so now you know. So if we missed anything giant over the weekend, um, you, know, you know why. Um, but today we're going to start off talking about a story that, that the two of us worked on together um, about how Republican women in Georgia are navigating politics in the Trump era. Exactly. And and this is a particularly interesting year. You know, not only is this a midterm election year where it's always kind of a referendum on the president um, and especially on the party in power, um, but this is also kind of the year of the woman um, as people have been talking, um, you know, since we've been following the women's marches since Trump got elected. And there seems to just be so much energy on the left and, and Democrats are so um, positive about how they're going to do this year. They keep talking about this blue wave. So I think what we were trying to explore in this story is how Republican women especially are are looking to navigate this climate where, especially among independents and some Republican women, um, they're not super thrilled with the president. And let's lay out the sort of landscape here. We've got more women running for office nationally and in Georgia um, than ever before, right? And we've got women, especially on the Democratic side, uh, for a slew of statewide offices and state legislative offices um, and U.S. House seats that are very competitive. Exactly. We have a record number of female candidates running for Congress. This is nationwide. Um, but also in Georgia, there were nine women who, who put their names up uh, for U.S. House seats from Georgia. Four of them will be on the ballot in November. And this is something you've also seen with um, with state House seats in, in Georgia. Um, but a lot of these groups that track this sort of thing have shown that still most of the enthusiasm when it comes to 
female empowerment and female candidates this year has been restricted to to the left. Um, and in Georgia, we've seen that about three quarters of the women running for the Georgia legislature are Democrats. And we're also seeing an uptick in Republican women running for some of these seats. Um, not not the statewide um, office, uh, uh, statewide post, though there's only one woman on the statewide ballot, and that's Trisha Pridebor, who is an incumbent public service commissioner. Um, but we're seeing more state legislative candidates too, who are I mean, not as many as, as the Democratic women, uh, but we're seeing an uptick as well there, right? Exactly. And weren't you out with Deanna Harris? She is a black Republican running in a Cobb County district that is pretty blue, actually, for the state house. And, and what did you hear from her? Yeah, she's she's one of the thirty or so um, women, female Republicans running for state legislative seats um, this year in Georgia, and this is an interesting. There's there's I guess three different trends we're starting to see with how um, women are conservative women are dealing with the sort of Trump era, uh, and and she's she's dealing with it in a in a very interesting way because she's she's running in a blue Cobb district, and this is a district that was so Democratic that. Um, you know, the incumbent office holder hasn't faced an opponent since 2012, and he won by two thirds of the vote uh, back then. Um, so it's a pretty safe Democratic district. She's trying to uh, kind of go uh, swim upstream in this type of climate, and um, she gets questions about Trump everywhere. I mean, uh, every every door she knocks on, it seems like she gets she gets some question about the national climate. Exactly. So, I mean, in these state house seats, where so much of what they're doing is is pretty local, um, and and still the questions she gets: What do you make of this thing Trump said? What do you make of this thing Trump is doing? Um, and and based off kind of our our conversations, you know, it seems like she. Um, you know, she wants to talk about other things. She wants to change the subject and talk about local matters and how, um, you know, things are getting better locally. Exactly. She's trying to divorce herself from the federal trends. And, and honestly, you're seeing that not just from women, of course, but from, from, from men, Republican men too, who are running in more competitive districts. I was at an event also a couple of days ago with Senator Fran Miller in Dunwoody, where he talked about the economy and education nonstop, uh, the, the the word Trump did not come out come up once. Uh, but when you're canvassing, when you're when you're knocking door to door, you can't help you know what the voters ask you. And uh, Deanna Harris gets asked about Trump a lot, and she says the same thing. She says essentially, you know, what what he's doing on Washington. I support his tax plan. I support the conservative jurist he picked for the Supreme Court. But I want to focus on what we could do in Georgia. And she talks about education and the economy. And that's the sort of guidance that that you're seeing from a lot of Republican Party poobahs in Washington these days. Um, they know that as a midterm year being the party in power, you know, their party's going to take a hit. That's historic, you know, that tends to be what happens in midterm years. Um, but but what you're hearing now as we get eight weeks away from the election is um, or even less than that now, is um you know, localize your races. If you're going to talk about national issues like the tax bill, um, try and talk about it locally. And that's a strategy that I think a lot of folks are, are taking to heart. You're seeing that with Karen Handel in the, the sixth district. She's running for her first full term in the House. Um, and, you know, she's very eager to talk about a lot of the work that she's done in Washington. Um, and these are these are initiatives like like the tax bill that, that have the blessing of the president. But, you know, in, in all of her communications, she's not mentioning Trump. She's mentioning, here's what 
what this tax bill is going to do for the district. Here's what I did to help pass this. Um, you know, embracing the president when she needs to, but also trying to kind of create her own brand and all of this. See what I'm doing for you guys back home. Here's what I'm thinking about when I'm up in D.C. And she kind of did that last year in the uh, special election where she kind of uh, she always called it a all hands on deck. So when Donald Trump came down or Mike Pence came down or Paul Ryan came down, she said, I'll take all the help I can get. But she also talked about a lot of a host of local issues. You, you sat down with her recently. Um, how did she explain that approach to you? Yeah, well, she said, you know, I'm the incumbent now. I have a record. Um, and you can, you know, the way that she talked about Trump, she said there's certain things where it makes sense for us, you know, where we're totally on the same page. And then there's other things like trade where she has very carefully distanced herself from the president because she said this is not, um, you know, this strategy right now is is not great for our district. Um and and you're seeing it also in her um, her political ads that she's been uh, she she rolled out her first television ad a, a few weeks ago and it focused of all issues on on human trafficking which is not something that gets a ton of attention up here um, but it's an issue she's been able to kind of tie to her own personal story she had a really rough childhood left home at 17 um, and and again talking about this is a, a bill she sponsored that uh, or co-sponsored that got the president's signature um, but his name is nowhere in this ad. Um, but just kind of showing folks, hey, here's what I've been able to do since I've come up to D.C. Yeah, I'm really interested by that because she's carefully picked what bills she was going to sponsor and or introduce. And the sex trafficking bill uh, was one of the first things she did after winning that special election last June. Exactly. Um, and I think you're seeing a similar strategy among a lot of Republican Congresswomen up on on Capitol Hill in the Trump era, um, you know, the, they're a part of a party that doesn't like identity politics in the same way that Democrats kind of use it as a tool um, to overtly say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had more women in charge? Um, Republicans don't like talking about that, but but this is kind of a way to to show you know, to kind of differentiate themselves and say, hey, we, we know what it's like being a woman. These are huge problems facing society. And we're going to be, um, you know, on the front lines fighting this on the Hill. Um, you've seen it with Kathy McMorris Rogers, the top ranking House Republican woman. Um, you've seen it with Barbara Comstock in Virginia. She's in one of the most competitive districts in the country, a suburban um, Virginia, D.C. area district that's been really hot lately. Um, find a bipartisan issue like that. That, that nobody's going to disagree with and show that you've been a leader on it. And that's a way to talk about gender without doing it so directly. And we're seeing a contrast to that strategy with Trisha Pridemore. And I mentioned earlier, um, she's the only uh, female Republican on the statewide ballot. She was appointed earlier this year by Governor Nathan Deal to an open post on the Public Service Commissioner's um, panel. And uh, it's a very interesting job. I mean, they, they regulate industry and utilities in Georgia, um, but often they end up talking about various other issues that have little to do with their jobs, like abortion and guns and, and, and other social issues. Um she got some flack early on in her in a primary uh, from a primary challenger who brought up the fact and his allies brought up the fact that that she tweeted some very negative things about Donald Trump in doing the 2016 campaign. She was not a, an early supporter of his and was worried about some of his rhetoric. Um, she has gone the polar opposite direction as November nears and has wholeheartedly embraced Donald Trump. And one of the reasons why I think is too we know we're talking about Karen Handel and Deanna Harris. These are these are. Uh, folks running in districts that are a lot more competitive. Well, 
Trisha Primor is on the statewide ballot, and statewide, Donald Trump still won the state by five points in 2016. Exactly. He's still wildly popular among Georgia Republicans. And our, our poll from earlier this month showed that. I believe it was something like 85% of likely Republican voters in Georgia still approved of the job he was doing. So it makes complete sense to me anyway, why why Pride Moore would be taking that stance. Exactly. And she's hired uh, Trump uh, tr- veterans from the Trump 2016 campaign to help shore up her grassroots network. And when I asked her, she and her campaign um, about you know how how she's navigating it. She said, "Look, uh, Donald Trump appointed conservative jurist. Donald Trump has uh, you know signed the tax reform bill, the tax cuts into law. And one of the first things uh, she did was try to you know uh, in, in office was try to leverage that and sign uh, their own version of a of a utility tax uh, rate cut." Um, and so she's she's highlighting that to voters all around Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. And and something we you know something I, I something related I want to talk about um, based on this poll that that UGA did for us recently um, that I think is kind of related to this this entire discussion was just how deeply divided the two genders are in in Georgia when it comes to some of the biggest political issues of the day. Not only are we talking about Donald Trump, where you know this extends to the race for governor, this extends to um, you know the top issues that voters are. Are talking about, um, you know, in the lead up to the election as well. While you saw a lot of men who listed the economy and jobs as their top issue, a lot of women put healthcare and and public schools up there. Um, you know, the economy was still important to them, but it kind of shows a, a difference in what folks are thinking about. Well, Tamara, as always, it's been a joy to have you on the show and listen to your analysis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And in a moment, we'll return. Welcome back. Now we're joined by Maya Prabhu, who has spent the last couple of weeks looking into a story about how African-American women are going to affect this November race. And Maya, what, what did you learn? What are your main takeaways? I found that most black women are super pumped about the election. They are excited about helping um, Stacey Abrams to get to the governor's mansion. They are volunteering with her campaign, phone banking, knocking on doors, and then taking what they learned back to their communities, back to their community organizations, and helping to get more people familiar with Stacey Abrams and excited and, and on her side. Let's talk about some of the numbers sort of underlying this trend. In the last midterm election, statewide midterm election in 2014, black voters made up more than 30% of the 5.1 million active voters, growing from about 26% in 2006. White voters dipped to less than 58%, down by about three percentage points. Um, But the black share of the electorate was about 29% of the vote. Stacey Abrams hopes to top 30%, at least maybe get as high as 31, 32, 33% of the vote. Yeah, so she, you know, knows that in the 90% of black women and black men will vote for the Democratic candidate. Um, But her idea is to reach out to folks who typically don't vote, to get to those communities that are typically um, poor, rural, minority communities, folks who aren't engaged in the political process, and get them to the polls to, to bump those numbers up for her in November. But Governor Deal considered it a victory in 2014 
when he got about 10% of the African-American vote. And um, he, he did get a lot of support talking about criminal justice reforms and other initiatives that he sort of spearheaded during his first term. Um, that's going to be a lot harder for any Republican to get to crack the double digits, especially uh, in, the, in the Trump era. You know, Brian Kemp has put together his inclusion coalition uh, with minorities um, from, you know, a wide range, Latino, Black, Jewish women, um, LGBT members to try and get them excited about his campaign. And he said that he's going to lean on his business experience and have his um, surrogates take those back to their communities and help them, you know, get excited about him. Particularly African-American women, um, when you look at the numbers, too, I mean, I'm looking at what uh, the Abrams campaign said in an internal memo um, but back before the primary. Black voters overall are about two, two-thirds of the, of the primary electorate. Um, black women, to make up roughly 45 percent of that total, general election as well, she's really relying on um, not just a lot of African-American and female support, but also just energized, mobilized to expand the electorate, like you mentioned earlier. She's kind of playing into the excitement that um, Black women have around the success they found in Alabama in December in um, defeating Roy Moore and getting Doug Jones elected. Um, And so a lot of Black women Democrats are energized about the power that they've always known they had, um, but using that to push um, Stacey Abrams over the top. And what is and you talked to to, to um, Stacey Abrams, and she was the former House Minority Leader, the former top Democrat of the Georgia House, um, for years, and tried to cultivate this uh, this base. Um, but what is she doing now? What is she doing on the campaign trail these last few few months to sort of consolidate and and, and lift that support? You know, she's from the beginning of her campaign, she has um, relied on the strength of of black women. Um, You know, in even in January, there was the Power Rising Conference or February earlier this year, there was the Power Rising Conference of black women of how they could, you know, take December in Alabama and expand that into into, you know, the midterm elections. So, you know, she's just been not taking black women for granted, which I think a lot of times black voters find with Democratic candidates, um, they do typically vote Democrat. And so they're kind of not really engaged until right before the general election. And so she has made it a point to stay involved in those communities throughout her campaign. And we were talking earlier about how this year we've seen a record number of, of women running, not just across the nation, but here in Georgia, um, 120 or so state legislative candidates, more women running for statewide office than ever before, especially on the, uh, we're seeing an uptick among Republicans, but particularly a giant surge among uh, among Democrats. Maya, from the, from the folks you talk to, how is this changing the way campaigns are being run now? For my story that um, I wrote, I spoke with former state representative Bob Holmes, um, who said that, you know, during his first campaign in 1974, he had one man on his campaign team and the rest of them were black women. And he's just, you know, Democrats have always known about the strength and power of that black women do in organizing. And he cited this quote of, if you want someone to give a speech, you can probably get a male. If you want someone who is willing to do the nitty gritty hard work of campaigning, you get a woman. And so what he's seeing now is that black women are 
finally seeing that they don't have to be in the background supporting candidates. They're not saying, oh, let me get this uncle to campaign. Let me get this man in my community to campaign. They're seeing that they can do it for themselves and represent themselves better. I mean, it plays into the whole narrative that we always heard, especially after the Alabama um, Senate race when Doug Jones uh, won a traditionally Republican Senate seat um, that that not only are African American women the backbone of the Democratic Party but they're they're kind of they kind of want to be seen as more than just the the reliable Democratic votes. Yeah, I think you know it goes back to being taken for granted. I think a lot of times Black women particularly have felt taken for granted in the campaign season. Um, And, you know, I've spoke to political scientists who point out that, you know, everybody's like, rah, rah, black women are so great. You know, they support the Democratic Party. They're the backbone. But then a lot of times when a Democrat loses a campaign, it's all because black people didn't turn out. Um, And so, you know, the women that I spoke with are kind of frustrated about this kind of um, weird dichotomy. I spoke with women who said they did not vote for, Black women who said they did not vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because they didn't feel as though she made an effort to uh, appeal to their communities and their issues. Um, But they say that they are excited about Stacey Abrams because um, she has invested in them from the beginning. Now, you mentioned this before, but it really is such an important part of Stacey Abrams' campaign strategy. When the AJC poll that came out a a week or so ago um, showed a 45-45 um, split between her and, and, and Brian Kemp. Uh, the Abrams campaign was ecstatic, and not be, just because it showed a tie, but it sh- their entire strategy relies on expanding the Democratic electorate in a way that, that no candidate has really done before, no Democratic candidate has really done before in Georgia. And so they view that 45 as, as the floor, as just the start. And if they're going to do that, it's going to get uh, – African-American women and African-American men who, who often don't vote in, in these midterm elections and who maybe didn't vote in the presidential elections, like you mentioned, to show up in droves. When I was researching this article, I found articles from 2016, you know, mentioning that black voter turnout was down by three million um, nationwide. And so, you know, she is very much focusing on getting into those communities where, you know, a lot of candidates maybe don't go during the campaign season and and getting them energized and explaining to them why her policies are the best for the state. And with that, we'll wrap up another episode of Politically Georgia's podcast. Thank you for joining us, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. 
Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.